And the reading will be from Matthew chapter 12, verses 15 through 37. If you're reading from the Pew Bible, that's in page 967. And I'll start in verse 15. It says, Aware of this, Jesus withdrew from that place. Many followed him, and he healed all their sick, warning them not to tell who he was. This was to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet Isaiah. Here is my servant whom I, am, whom I have chosen, the one I love in whom I delight. I will put my spirit on him, and he will proclaim justice to the nations. He will not quarrel or cry out. No one will hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not snuff out, till he leads justice to victory. In his name the nations will put their hope. Then they brought him a demon-possessed man who was blind and mute, and Jesus healed him so that he could both talk and see. All the people were astonished and said, Could this be the son of David? But when the Pharisees heard this, they said, It is only by Beelzebub, the prince of demons, that this fellow drives out demons. Jesus knew their thoughts and said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself will be ruined, and every city or household divided against itself will not stand. If Satan drives out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then can his kingdom stand? And if I drive out demons by Beelzebub, by whom do your people drive them out? So then they will be your judges. But if I drive out demons by the Spirit of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Or again, how can anyone enter a strong man's house and carry off his possessions unless he first ties up the strong man? Then he can rob his house. He who is not with me is against me, and he who does not gather with me scatters. And so I tell you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven men, but the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. Anyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but anyone who speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or in the age to come. Make a tree good, and its fruit will be good. Or make a tree bad, and its fruit will be bad. For a tree is recognized by its fruit. You brood of vipers, how can you who are evil say anything good? For out of the overflow of the heart the mouth speaks. The good man brings good things out of the good stored up in him. And the evil man brings evil things out of the evil stored up in him. But I tell you that men will have to give an account on the day of judgment for every careless word they have spoken. For by your words you will be acquitted. And by your words, you will be condemned. This is God's word. Go ahead and keep your Bibles open to Matthew 12, if you will. I'm not as uh, widely read in classic literature or just literature in general as I'd like to be. Uh, In fact, I pretty much made it through my entire college career without completing a single book, which is not necessarily, you know, something to emulate, but it is what it is. Uh, It wasn't until I had kids that I really started learning to love reading. Uh, especially, you know, some of the, the classics like Lewis and Tolkien, which is about as wide as my range of classics gets right now. Uh, 
and, and one of the common themes uh, that engages the reader and draws you into an epic story like Narnia or like the Lord of the Rings or even an epic film like you know, Star Wars or, or Braveheart or something like that is the theme of disputed sovereignty. Disputed sovereignty. Who really has the right to be in charge here? That's the question underneath some of those great stories. To whom does the power and the glory and the dominion really belong? Is it Aslan or Tosh? The Dark Lord Sauron or the free peoples of Middle-earth? The dark side or the light and so on. Underneath all the great battles between forces of good and evil is that question. Who really has the right to be sitting on the throne? That's what's at stake. And that's what draws us into the tension of that battle, the suspense of it all. And I think that these epic stories appeal to us because they mirror the story of human history so well. Not just the history of wars and battles between nations and kingdoms, but human history from a heavenly perspective as well. The ultimate dispute over God's sovereignty versus human sovereignty. Who really has the right to be in charge? Psalm 2 depicts this struggle over disputed sovereignty and, and really shows us the story of fallen humanity. Why do the nations conspire and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth take their stand and rulers gather together against the Lord and against his anointed one. Let us break their chains, they say, and throw off their fetters, their bonds. So God's rule over his creation is seen by the nations as oppressive. What gives you the right to rule us? That's what they've gathered together to say and, and then to do something about it as they try and conspire to knock God off of his throne and take it for themselves. The same dispute is what we've seen throughout the Gospel of Matthew so far, which is what we've been studying through. So early in the story, we read of King Herod, the king of Israel at the time of Christ's birth, plotting to kill Jesus in order to preserve his own throne. I'm the one in charge here. We saw Satan tempt Jesus in the wilderness to turn against his father and their plan to establish his kingdom through the cross. And throughout the story, we've seen religious leaders, uh, the religious leaders of Judea, challenging and opposing Jesus' teachings and miracles, rejecting his claim as king, and eventually plotting to kill him, which is where the last story we looked at a couple weeks ago in Matthew 12, left off, Matthew 12, 14. But the Pharisees went out and plotted how they might kill Jesus. The story of God's kingdom, the story of human history, is a story of disputed sovereignty. Who really has the right to rule here? And unlike some human wars, there are no neutral territories no neutral sides in this dispute. There's no Switzerland here. 
As Jesus says in Matthew 12:30, he who is not with me is against me. You are either for Jesus and his kingdom and his authority and rule over this world as king and savior, or you're against him. You're for someone else. Everyone has a position in this dispute, whether we realize it or not. And, of course, nobody can see the condition of anybody else's heart. Our fruit, our lives will bear witness to to that position. How we live, what we say, reveals which side we're on between Jesus and against Jesus. Do your words and your actions and your attitudes recognize Jesus as king? How does your heart respond to Jesus' ministry? Well, what we see this morning in Matthew 12 is that our response to Jesus' spirit-empowered ministry reveals the condition of our hearts. It reveals which side our heart is on in that dispute, how we react when we see and follow the story, the life, the ministry of Jesus. So let's pray together and let's look at this story and seek God to search our hearts as to where we're at in this question. Lord, we do want you to Show yourself to us this morning. Lord, we recognize in so many ways the power of this great dispute. Lord, would that everyone recognize your sovereignty, your goodness, your merciful rule. But Lord, it's because of our rebellion and our sin that this world is such a mess. And so, Lord, I pray this morning as we look into your word, as we see who you are and what you're doing by the Spirit, I pray that your Spirit would be at work right here, laying bare our own hearts, revealing the condition of our own hearts to you, that we might do business with you, that we might see you for who you are and respond. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. So how do our hearts respond to Jesus and his ministry? Which side of the dispute over who's in charge are we on? Uh, One of the many ways that Matthew uh, demonstrates the uniqueness of Jesus and his claim of divine authority to rule as king, we've seen that theme in every single passage we've looked at, that Jesus is the true king. One of the ways Matthew demonstrates that claim is by showing us how what Jesus does, he accomplishes in union with his heavenly father and by the power of the Holy Spirit. Jesus is not some rogue guy out there doing his own thing, trying to build his own kingdom. His authority and his ministry come from heaven. And one of the clearest evidences of that is seeing how consistently he is accomplishing his work by the power of the Holy Spirit. And we see the foundation for that Spirit-empowered ministry in verses 15 to 21. So if you'll look at those verses with me, Matthew 12, 15 to 21. So Jesus has just caught wind of the Pharisees' uh, plan to kill him. 
back in verse 14. So he quietly withdraws from that area and he goes on doing what he's been doing, ministering to people, healing those who are following him around, who are in need of healing. And as he does so, he tells them not to go tell anybody else what he's doing. And that's puzzled a lot of people. Uh, a lot of, you know, why? I thought you're establishing your kingdom. What's wrong with a little fanfare and publicity? You know, why can't we go tell others? Well, Matthew explains why Jesus does not want word to spread too far by citing Isaiah 42, which is one of the suffering servant passages in that great Old Testament book that gives us a picture of this servant who's going to come and rescue God's people. Matthew quotes Isaiah 42, 1 through 4, in verses 17 and following. He says this, Jesus telling them to to kind of uh, keep the message low there, this was to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet Isaiah. Here is my servant whom I have chosen, the one I love in whom I delight. I will put my spirit on him and he will proclaim justice to the nations. He will not quarrel or cry out. No one will hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break. A smoldering wick he will not snuff out till he leads justice to victory in his name the nations will put their hope. Jesus is not like most kings. He does not establish his throne through force or violence. As God's chosen servant, he comes gently, mercifully, humbly, laying his life down sacrificially in order to establish his throne. This is not what the Jewish people were expecting in their anointed king. They were they wanted a king, a conquering king, who would come with a sharp sword, ready to deal swiftly with Rome and any other foreign threats around them. That's what they wanted. But Matthew reminds us here what Isaiah told us a long time ago. That is not the way of God's chosen king. A bruised reed he will not break. I don't know if you've ever been out hiking and you see some twig kind of hanging there just by a thread. What do you do? Usually you just grab the thing and finish the job. A br- He's so gentle. A bruised reed, he will not break. A smoldering wick that just needs to be put out of its misery, he will not snuff out. His is not a way of force and coercion, but a way of self-sacrifice. And so until the time comes for him to be exalted to the cross where he will accomplish justice for all nations, Jesus is keeping a relatively low profile. Don't go telling a whole lot of people, my time has not yet come. But the passage that he cites in Isaiah tells us something else about Jesus. And it's that something else that our story kind of picks up on and focuses on for the rest of the passage. It's the simple phrase in the middle of verse 18. I will put my spirit upon him. Jesus is the king who serves by God's spirit. By God's spirit. And again, that's one of the key ways we know his authority is really from heaven. And we we don't often think about Jesus depending on the Holy Spirit. 
since he himself was God incarnate. He kind of had the power of God in and of himself. We, we instead kind of often think of the Trinity kind of like a, a trio of tag team wrestlers. So God is in the ring during the Old Testament, you know, leg dropping sinners and, and doing stuff. And then he tags Jesus in the Gospels who comes into the ring. The Father steps out and Jesus is in there. And then after he ascends, he tags the Holy Spirit who then dives in at Pentecost, you know, with a flying elbow or something like that. And and that's what we kind of think, that they're just kind of taking turns. That's not how it works. That's not how it works. The Father, Son, and Holy Spirit have all been working together in unity and love to accomplish their plan for their glory from all eternity. If you just think of creation in Genesis 1, God creates by his word. It was by the word that the Father spoke that he created and called things into existence while the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Later we find out that word is Jesus himself. Colossians 1 tells us, For by Jesus all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things were created by him and for him. So so it is in, in, in Jesus' earthly ministry, we should expect to see the same thing. The Father, the Son, and the Spirit all working together in unity as each one accomplishes the different role in their unified plan of redemption. That's what we see throughout the Gospels. According to the Father's plan, Jesus was conceived by the Holy Spirit. Matthew 1.20. When Jesus was commissioned for his ministry, his earthly ministry at his baptism, the Father announced from heaven, this is my Son whom I love, with whom I'm well pleased, while the Spirit descended over him, just like at creation. Immediately after that, Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And when he prevailed, he came out of the wilderness in the power of the Spirit, Luke 4 tells us. And so, Jesus is is depending on the Spirit throughout his ministry in union with the Father. That doesn't mean... He wasn't exercising his own power as God. We see several examples of that. It does mean that he's working in concert with the Father and the Spirit to accomplish redemption for God's people. And the presence of the Spirit in his ministry is one of the chief evidences that this is God's king and God's kingdom that's being built. The presence of the Spirit in his ministry is one of the chief evidences of that. Verses 15 to 21 lay that foundation. Jesus is the king who serves by God's Spirit. Verses 22 through 37 show us what's at stake in recognizing that when that claim now gets challenged. The challenge to Jesus' sovereignty erupts in verses 22 to 24. It begins with a simple example of Jesus' spirit-empowered ministry in verse 22. They, then they brought him a demon-possessed man who was blind and mute, and Jesus healed him so that he could both talk and see. Now, as, as is often, though not always the case in the Gospels, this man's physical disability 
was but a symptom of a demonic oppression on him. And Jesus, with you know, what looks like no effort at all, casts this demon out and heals the man, his voice and his sight. But notice there are two different reactions here. First is the reaction of the crowd in verse 23, who are amazed at what they just saw. This is incredible. And who even associate Jesus' miracle with the promises of Israel's coming king, the son of David. This isn't the son of David, is it? They, they knew enough of the Old Testament and the promises to think, okay, I'm seeing this authority being demonstrated here. What's that mean about who this guy is? Now, I don't think that they've made a decision in this story. I think they're still kind of operating in the realm of neutrality. They haven't decided what they think about the dispute over who's really in charge. Though to remain in indecision is eventually to decide against Jesus. At some point, you must decide for him or else you're against him. So so the crowds are kind of amazed and, and, and puzzled. The Pharisees, on the other hand, which is a group of religious leaders in early Judaism who, who were kind of known not just for how, how well they kept the law, but kind of adding to the law with their different traditions and the strictness of them. The Pharisees, uh, they have a strong position in this dispute over who's in charge, and it's not for Jesus. Uh, verse 24, but when the Pharisees heard this, they said, it's only by Beelzebub, the prince of demons, that this fellow drives out demons. Now, they've made this charge before, back in chapter 9. And essentially what they're saying is, yeah, I mean, something powerful has just happened. But it's not the power of God you're seeing. It's the power of Satan. Beelzebub was a slang term for Satan. It meant something like Lord of the Flies or Lord of the Filth. Not a compliment uh, either to Satan or to, to anyone associated with him. But it is a strong registration of where the Pharisees are at in this dispute. Jesus responds to this challenge, this claim that what he's doing, he's not doing by the Spirit, but by Satan. He responds to that challenge and vindicates his ministry in verses 25 to 32. Look at verse 25 with me. He begins by dismantling the logic of their accusation. Jesus knew their thoughts and said to them, every kingdom divided against itself will be ruined. And every city or household divided against itself will not stand. If Satan drives out Satan, he's divided against himself. How then can his kingdom stand? And these lines were were famously quoted by Abraham Lincoln in 1858 when he applied them to the division over slavery in the United States at that time. But the logic is painfully simple here. If Satan wants any hope of defeating God's kingdom, what sense does it make for him to give power to someone to start taking down his own army? You know, if he's divided against himself, that's not a good military strategy, okay? So it's very unlikely that what you just witnessed was that. Then he continues to dismantle their logic 
by showing how their accusation is actually self-incriminating. In verse 27, And if I drive out demons by Beelzebub, by whom do your people drive them out? So then they will be your judges. Jesus wasn't the only one casting out demons in those days. Even some among the Pharisees had done so. So if the only way you can cast out a demon is by Satan's power, you know, then you're just as guilty as I am. Your logic doesn't hold up. But in contrast to their faulty logic, Jesus shows the sound logic of his claim. To cast out demons is not to work in league with Satan, but it is an aggressive attack on him and his dark kingdom. Jesus illustrates that in verse 29. Or again, how can anyone enter a strong man's house and carry off his possessions unless he first ties up the strong man? Then he can rob his house. So by casting out demons, Jesus is not working with Satan. He's disarming him. He's preparing for the plunder. And so the Pharisees have witnessed something absolutely incredible, something no human could have done by themselves. They've tried to ascribe that to the power of Satan, but there's no logical way that can be true. And so there's only one other possible explanation for what they just observed. And Jesus says what it is in verse 28. But if I drive out demons by the Spirit of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. That's the only logical explanation of what you just saw. Jesus is the king who serves by God's Spirit. And how you respond to that Spirit-empowered ministry reveals the condition of your heart. Which side of the dispute you're on. And that means that the Pharisees now have to make a pretty important decision. And it cannot be neutral. Again, verse 30. He who is not with me is against me. And he who does not gather with me scatters. Either they are with Jesus and for him and the advance of his kingdom or they are contributing to the ongoing ongoing scattering of the lost sheep of Israel. And there is a lot at stake in their decision. In fact, heaven and hell hang in the balance of this decision. Verse 31. And so I tell you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven men, but blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. Anyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but anyone who speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or the age to come. Now, these lines are, no doubt, some of the most confusing, perhaps even terrifying lines in Matthew's Gospel, maybe even in the New Testament. What is this so-called unforgivable sin and how do I know whether I've committed it or not? To even be worried about whether you've committed it is the first sign that you haven't committed it. Uh, I'll explain that in a minute. But we need to read these lines in light of the conversation that Jesus has just had with the Pharisees. 
the Pharisees have never been shy about their hatred for Jesus. But Jesus tells them here what we see everywhere else in the Bible. There is forgiveness for every sin. Before we get caught up with what's the bad one, don't miss what he says. There is forgiveness for every sin. Even on your worst days, you are never beyond the reach of God's grace. Whatever it is you've said or done, however shameful or disgusting you feel because of it, however deeply you've hurt somebody or taken advantage of them, there is grace and forgiveness through Jesus Christ. We cannot miss that point. Because by the end of Matthew's story, Jesus will have gone to the cross. And all of that ugliness, all of that rebellion, all of that sin that we do and commit will be poured out on Him instead. And the holy anger of God against that sin poured out on Him in our place such that through faith in Him, we can become clean. We can become made new, set free. Every, every sin can be forgiven. And every blasphemy or slander against God, even slandering Jesus, the Son of Man, he says. That's incredible. The Pharisees made a sport of slandering Jesus. But now they've come to a crossroads. In their hatred of Jesus here, they have ascribed to Satan what Jesus has in fact accomplished by the Spirit. But Jesus has provided indisputable evidence that that cannot be true. There's only one explanation for his power. God's Spirit at work and God's kingdom breaking into the world through Jesus himself. And so now the Pharisees are at a unique crossroads. They have to make a decision. If they now continue in the face of indisputable evidence in their hatred for Jesus and their insistence that he's depending upon Satan and not the Spirit, they will be guilty of blaspheming or slandering the Holy Spirit for which there is no forgiveness. So to to blaspheme the Holy Spirit, it's not merely to make a careless comment about the Spirit, though we will be held to account for every careless comment, as we'll see. It is the high-handed, close-hearted, willful rejection of God and His kingdom. It's to see Jesus for who He is, to know that that's who He is, and to hate Him and want nothing to do with him except to see his kingdom ended. That's what the Pharisees are at risk of doing right now, because they have no more excuses not to bow the knee. That's what it means here to slander the Spirit. It is to cut yourself off from the Holy Spirit, and therefore from the only possibility of a heart being changed by God and therefore from the possibility of forgiveness. That's why I said earlier, if if you're worried that you've done it, that's the first sign that you haven't. But it is a dreadful warning. And it's a warning that Jesus wants the Pharisees and us to hear. 
Because most of us still have that choice before us, which must be made. Again, there are no neutral territories in this dispute over sovereignty. And heaven and hell, eternal life and eternal death, hang in the balance. They all depend on whether you are with Jesus, trusting him as king and savior, as your only hope, your very God, or whether you are giving the allegiance and faith that he deserves to something else. In light of that, Jesus spells out the implications for responding to his ministry in verses 33 to 37 with a pretty frank invitation. Verse 33. Here I think the English Standard Version captures the sense a little bit better. Either make the tree good and its fruit good, or make the tree bad and its fruit bad. For the tree is known by its fruit. The reality is that all of our hearts already have a position in this dispute. For or against Jesus. Now, it does not mean that those positions can't be changed. But each of our hearts already have a position, and that position is made clear by the fruit of our lives. What we say, what we do in response to Jesus and his ministry. A tree is known by its fruit. Jesus isn't calling us to change the kind of tree we are in these verses. Only the Holy Spirit can do that. He's calling us to own the kind of tree that we are. Make the tree good and its fruit good, or make it bad and its fruit bad. Own the condition of your heart. In other words, he's saying to the Pharisees, stop pretending you're a good tree. You, you see yourselves as servants of God, doing all of these things. The fruit of your life and your lips says something entirely different. In fact, it's impossible for you, Pharisees, being a bad tree, to produce good fruit. So stop pretending you're not fooling me or my Father or the Spirit or anyone else. You brood of vipers, how can you, who are evil, Say anything good. For out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. The good man brings good things out of the good stored up in him. The evil man brings evil things out of the evil stored up in him. If your heart is evil, stop trying to, to pretend and putting that you're saying good things. Because your careless words have betrayed you. That's, that's what he's saying here. And for those words, they will be held account because it's by those words that you see what's really inside. Verse 36, I tell you that men will have to give account on the day of judgment for every careless word they've spoken. For by your words, you will be acquitted and by your words, you will be condemned. So how we respond to Jesus and his ministry, what, what comes out of our heart through our lips, that reveals the condition of our heart. And regardless of where you're at right now on that, the first thing we have to do is own our condition. Whatever it is, acknowledge it for what it is. That's where we start. If you have issues with Jesus, you do not have to pretend. Okay? You don't have to pretend that 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 you don't. 
that doesn't help you. It doesn't help anybody. And you're not going to be able to keep it up for that long. God does not want people to pretend. He wants us to be honest, to put our questions, our frustrations, our reservations on the table so that they can be dealt with. So we can honestly engage them. If that's where you're at, that's the condition of your heart. You're mad at God. You, you are suspicious of this whole thing. You're, you've been burned. Whatever it is, I want you to know, I'm glad you're here. You are welcome here. You do not have to pretend. You don't have to. But I do want you to engage. I do want you to wrestle with these claims. Because there is forgiveness for every sin. And there is a warning for not owning Jesus. So you don't have to pretend. You can own that condition. If you think you're good with Jesus, but your mouth and your life suggest otherwise, then you need to own that too. We need to search our hearts and see whether we are genuinely in the faith. If our mouths and our attitudes and our lives say that, that somebody other than Jesus is in charge and running this world, we need to ask ourselves hard questions about where we're really at. We need to hear the warning in this passage. And we need to hear the invitation to come to Jesus because there is forgiveness for every sin. And if you know that apart from Jesus, you have nothing, no hope, no life, if that's the condition of your heart, then rest in Jesus. And keep relying on His Spirit for obedience. Own your condition. Rejoice that in Jesus you are a child of God. You are forgiven. There is no wrath left for the believer because Jesus drank the cup of God's wrath to the dregs on the cross. There's no guilt, no shame. Own your condition and rejoice in who you are before your Savior. Don't try to walk in obedience on your own. You can't do it. Walk with the people of God. Walk by relying on the Spirit of God who is within you. If you belong to Jesus, if that's the condition of your heart, you don't have to try and pull this thing off by yourself. You can't. But within you is the very Spirit whom Jesus relied on during His earthly ministry, the very Spirit who raised Him from the dead, who is now in you giving life to your mortal body as you live out your days here. Own your condition. Rely on the Spirit of God who is within you. Walk faithfully and joyfully with Jesus. Jesus is the King who serves by God's Spirit. May we serve God by His Spirit as well. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we ask that you would search our hearts. 
We know that you know the condition of every heart here. We know that you have the power to change our hearts. So, Lord, I pray for those whose hearts are weary now. They love you. They've got nothing apart from you, but they're weary. Pressed down by the world. Beset by lasting sins. God, would you speak into their hearts your comfort, your presence, your power to revive them and to carry them and to give them repentance and joy. Lord, for the hearts that are just wrestling and scattered and afraid, they're not sure what to make of all of this. They know there has to be something more to life, but they're not sure whether it's Jesus or something else. Would you... Would you sweetly and gently speak into their heart and show yourself to them? Show them your beauty. Show them your authority. Show them your kindness and love. Show them the cross. Show them the resurrection. Bring them to yourself. And Lord, for hearts that are anger, angry and bitter. Lord, within your kindness, would you soften them? Would you soften them before it's too late? Would you draw them to yourself? Would you remind them that whatever lot this world has dealt them, it dealt far worse to your son. And he took it. He took it for them and for everyone. That there's nothing they have experienced in life that he can't sympathize with. There's nothing that has happened to them that he did not himself take in their place on the cross. Free their hearts to see you and love you. Free all of our hearts to rejoice in you. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.